Well, actually, we're all old friends, right? There's a lot of people in this uh, room today that are really, have been a really and are still a really important part of Cherithbrook Catholic Worker. Um, raise your hand if you've been there for even a minute. Say, look, we're family, right? Um, it was interesting because I was at a, in the Presbyterian Church, I'm on CPM, Committee for Preparation on Ministry, and I spent the whole day with these uh, new candidates and inquirers, right? Tony was there. Um, and, uh, and so I spent the whole day there talking about folks, and finally at the end of the day, they, someone said, oh, and where are you, where do, is it, what parish are you at? And I said, oh, I live at Cherithbrook, and they're like, oh, that place. It's like nobody had any idea who I was, uh, that I was connected with Cherithbrook, which I think is the beauty of Cherithbrook, because they know about it because of actually the people out in this, a lot of people in this room tonight, and I think that speaks a lot for the kind of, the kind of community that we are, so... Uh, it's also really great to be introduced by, um, uh, by Garrett. He's a longtime friend and he's a longtime wise trustee. Our community properties are owned by trust and uh, in a trust, and so they really help to offer us a lot of support. Um, so when I was called, or when Wendy called me and asked me to talk, she asked me to talk about a community, uh, spirituality of community. And... Um, there's a lot of practices if you live, how many of you know what the Catholic worker movement is? A couple, okay, actually a lot, okay. So there's a lot of things you could call spiritual practices that come out of the Catholic worker movement and tradition, um, a spirituality of nonviolence, uh, spirituality of community, spirituality of hospitality. Uh, in Dorothy Day, who was one of the co-founders of the, of the movement, uh, she talked a lot about a spirituality of precarity which maybe models a little bit more what I'm going to talk about tonight. But I told Wendy that um, uh, I feel humbled to be here, but partly I want to talk about a spirituality of simplicity, um, partly because that's been one of the commitments of my personal vocation at Cherith Brook that, that I think about a lot and that I've struggled with the most. And so I think I've I'd like to think I've reflected on it a lot, but I think it's also because uh, I'm still working it out pretty deeply in my own life uh, these some years later. Um, let me begin by, well, actually, this is what I'd like to do. I, I was thinking about this on the way over. I'm in, the, I'm in what uh, Richard Rohr calls the second phase of life, and I'm becoming more and more aware of that. And so here's what I've committed to myself in the second phase of my life, that every, anywhere I speak from now on, that I want to get to the punchline first, because sometimes I talk too long. That's really the reality of it. And I don't always get the punchline. But because I think that I'm delighted that you all are reflecting on spiritual, spirituality and spiritual practices, I would like to tell you and to remind you that the end of all spiritual practices is to somehow be more deeply connected and intertwined with a divine love. I mean, that's it. Whatever you get out of tonight, do not forget that that is the end of all spiritual practices, to somehow be more deeply connected to the divine love. Um, and that's a, that's a very... I was raised in an environment where if you talked about God being love, you were very liberal and progressive, and that was too simplistic. And um, God was a lot too many other things. Uh, 
And I've come to see now that yes, to talk about God as love is very simple and is the simple meaning of God's presence with us, but it's not simplistic. Um, the more you begin to unpack it, the more you realize that um, it's as deep and as wide and as, as broad and as far uh, it's, um, as, as our lives are. Uh, so, so that's it. I mean, that's really the message. I hope you stay for the rest of it. <laughs> but but I, I do hope that uh, I just don't want to forget the punchline because for me that's, that's really... Uh, that's where all of our spiritual, all the spiritual practices that you're learning about, I hope, are grounded. Um, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, what would you say is a word that you use to describe yourself when your life feels unmanageable? Like we all kind of have those go-to words, right? So what are the what is the word that you use in your in your you know conversation? How you doing? And what's the word that you go to or words? that you go to when, when you feel like your life is unmanageable? Off. And feel free to throw them out if you want. Off. What? Off? off. Yeah, off. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Chaos. Chaos. Chaotic. Unmoored. Unmoored. Heavy. Heavy. I'm sorry? Busy. Yeah, busy. How many times do I say I try not to say it anymore? <laughs> I'm busy, right? Lost. Lost. Disorganized. Grief. Grief. Exhausted. Exhausted. What depressed. Yeah, these are all really, really great words. And my question is, what do you do for comfort? When you're in those moments, where do you go for comfort, for some kind of reprieve? Where do you find your solace? I mean, that's what the spiritual journey is, right? Is it in the midst of those moments? Finding your solace and your, and your set of comfort. Well, I'm trying to frame this conversation the way that it's, uh, the way that I, as a product of this society, have generally gone to my solace. Uh, and that is, I consume something. I eat something. I buy something. I go and work harder than I already was, which probably got me to where I'm feeling at the moment. Um, some kind of distraction, right? Uh, that is the culture of consumption that we live in. It's not the only way to frame our world, but it's one that's really impacted my life, and I still, I still am deeply shaped by it. Or, or we have the opportunity uh, to embrace a spiritual practice, which is what this community is about. And I would just like to offer that one of those, in the midst of all of those feelings that you wonderfully named and honestly named for yourself and, and all of us resonated with, that you would, instead of turning to consumption or some form of it, whatever that might be, that you would look for, a, you would reach out and grasp hold of a practice of simplicity as a counter to that. Um, so... Jody and I's journey, um, I, we watched Howard Thurman. How many of you know who Howard Thurman is? Okay, not enough of you have raised your hand, so please, after tonight, go. Uh, there's, a great, there's a new documentary about Howard Thurman, and we got to watch it at Cherith Brook this last week. 
Uh, it was the Kansas City debut of, of Howard Thurman's documentary. It hadn't been seen yet. Thank you very much. So, um, but in it, one of the statements there was, um, Jesus of the Gospels never asked to be worshipped. He called us to follow him. And that's kind of a good expression of the way that Jody and I began one phase of our journey that happened about uh, 15, 16 years ago. Um, this, this awareness in our life that Jesus' life was defined, among other things, by two aspects. And one was, Jesus had no place to lay his head. And I think that was not only a claim for mission or, or like claim as divinity or anything like that. It was as much about his expression of life detached. Right? Um, foxes have dens, um, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I think the second thing that really spoke to us at that time about Jesus was this clarity of focus that he had. Um, the kingdom of God is the expression, but it can be translated into a lot of things. I think the presence of God is, is in the world is one way I think we could translate it. The essence of God, um, the reign of God, there's lots of ways. But I think the singular focus that he had, and that was the core of his message. Um, those two things really moved us, and we desired for a, to, to deepen our pilgrimage uh, into God. and into following Jesus as we understood at that time. And so around 2004, uh, I was an associate pastor in Overland Park. We lived south of here. And um, we had just kind of settled down. It felt really wonderful. We had our house, two cars, two little kids running around. Uh, I'd finished some degrees. Jody got to take a break from teaching. And, um, and we felt called to this community, intentional Christian community in, in Atlanta. And, it required, all of a sudden we had laid down these beautiful roots. It felt so, um, it felt normal. It felt good to be normal that way for a while. Um, but I think when God is calling you, you, you don't always uh, get to stay there. or You don't feel happy there necessarily or joy-filled. So anyway, we sold the house and we sold the cars and we moved into this community and began for us a journey um, that included uh, a journey towards simplicity for us. Um, and it, it began, so I want to talk a little bit about what I think simplicity means. And this journey began with one of these things that I understand when I think of a spirituality. Simplicity is probably the one that most of us start with. And it's not that it is the starting point. Some of us end up in this spot. It depends where you're at, right? But um, we, a spirituality dis- simplicity implied material and simplicity. So for us, kind of uh, sorting through all the stuff that we had and figuring out what to do with our possessions and moving into a community of sharing and a common purse and all that was kind of one of those, was that piece. And I want to talk a little bit what simplicity means, spiritual simplicity. And we've come, one of the ways we've come to talk about that at Cherithbrook is, is downward mobility. It's a word we borrowed. Uh, most of our words are borrowed words out of much appreciation for all the spiritual leaders in our life uh, from Henry Nouwen. And um, it sounds better for most folks than like voluntary poverty, but partly because it recognizes that we're all in different places, right? Um, so over the years, I think everyone that's lived in our community has tried to explore different expressions of material simplicity. And I think one of the things we've done well is just to honor the difference, different places or interests people have. So for me, 
um, just to share an example, um, I don't have a cell phone. And it's not really that big a deal to me, and we joke about it sometimes. I wish I had that picture to show uh, of Jody and I recently in Joplin, and you'll see I've got a phone finally. But uh, just jokingly, I didn't get a phone. Um, I, I got to show you the picture. The picture says it all. But I will say that um, the cell phone is for me something, whatever a, a, a simplicity, material simplicity looks like, it has to make your life uncomfortable, uh, difficult. So that sounds like a paradox because we're talking about simplicity here, right? But I think a discipline, a spirituality of simplicity is actually going to make your life uncomfortable, at least for a period of time disorient you for some period of time because you're so adapted to society or your life the way it is or the patterns that whatever you choose is going to be reorienting for you in some way. Um, so there's a little irony involved. I was, we were in New Orleans for our kids. We took our kids on a little graduation trip and I went, uh, I took off in the afternoon by myself by bus and um, I got stuck down there without a way to get back and I was like five miles away. And I thought, okay, I don't know my family's phone numbers. <laughs> I know Jody's phone number. I don't know the kid's phone number. I don't have a phone. So I thought what I would do is what I've always done and go into the store and ask to borrow the store phone. And I went into the store and they, a couple of stores, they wouldn't let me use their phones. Now, not because they were being rude. I think they just were so unused to people asking to borrow phones anymore. Everybody has a phone, don't they? So then I already was very aware that if I start stopping people on the street, people have a deep attachment to their cell phone in a way that you never did to a landline. It's a very personal item. I used to give my kids a hard time. You know, you don't need a cell phone. Ask to borrow your friend's phone at school. Like, Dad, no way. You don't borrow people's phones, which is crazy to me because that's a, a great resource that everyone, anyway. So I'm on the streets, and it took me about the sixth person, young man, with a phone, that I see around the shower house a lot with all a trashed screen, you could barely read it. Said, sure, no problem, I'll give you your phone. You know, I think you knew I wasn't gonna run up with it. Um, but I, I think it's just an example. It's, it alienates me to not have a cell phone. There are certain people that don't call me or find it difficult to communicate or get frustrated with me. Um, and I think that's uh, important for me because then I have to work through that a little bit. It also, I borrow uh, a cell phone a lot and I think that's also good. I think it's good for me and it's good for other people. I think um, the cell phone, it sounds so trite, I know, but this is just, these are the kind of practices, I, these are the kind of expressions of a simplicity that I think are important. Um, but sometimes I borrow Jody's phone and I'll use it for a period of the day. And I really value the conversations I have on that phone because I don't get to use it very often. And so if I'm on there, I'll, I'll enjoy, I mean, I, I notice about myself that I take more pause in the communication that it's had because I don't have it that often, so I really value it. Um, so moving forward, material simplicity. Um, this might even look like, for some of us, addictions that we're very aware of. I have an addiction to books. That's one thing seminary taught me, is to love books more than I already did. Um, so it might look like something like that, and, and I asked Jody's permission. She came home from yoga recently with a beautiful quote that I um, have held on to is, you can never get enough of what you don't need. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what, a material that's what material simplicity helps you to unpack. You can never get enough of what you don't need. Um, 
Uh, okay, so the second kind of simplicity that I've been wrestling with in these years um, is, uh, I guess I would call it detachment. And um, this one's a little harder for me to talk about because I think it's the one that slipped up on me and um, has been the most hardest for me to process uh, with people. I need, I've needed help working through this a lot. Um, and that is, uh, I, I call it detachment from things like that we are taught to value, especially for those of us uh, that come from privilege of various kinds, whether it's privilege of education, higher education, or white privilege, or uh, economic privileges, uh, whatever the case may be. We're a part of the cultural mainstream. We have the cultural power at our fingertips, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so um, this detachment from things like having this divine purpose or this significance or success as we might define it for ourselves, right? Um, how, how that we try to find a, a sense of accomplishment in our life. Um, for me, the one I, I label for myself has been status. So, um, uh, you know, to be in around people who have suffered great poverty and racism in our community, and frankly, they don't really care much about my status. And that's been both a helpful part of my journey and a challenge for me personally um, to recognize and to learn to detach from that, um, to identify my own expectations that emerge out of that, that I didn't even realize were there. Uh, it may come out in anger or frustration, uh, disappointment, um, depression, you know, just the kinds of ways that not having, that those expectations are part of your DNA and, um, and, and learning first, sometimes it just took a while for me to acknowledge that I had it more than I, than I admitted to myself. Um, so I, I think that a, a discipline or a, a spirituality of simplicity might, you might be exploring in your life. Uh, you know, our society, that whole idea of downward mobility obviously plays off the idea of upward mobility. We're, we're taught to make that a goal in our life. And if we're not making certain marks that are defined by our context, our family, our upbringing, and or the things that we were told we could never do, even the negative expectations in our lives, then um, you know, how is it that we um, learn to see that upward mobility and to flip it and, and explore a downward mobility that helps us to detach from those expectations and create and allow God and community to create new expectations in our life, to reshape those understandings of what success looks like and what status means, um, uh, honest and more healthy relationship expectations in our community. Um, okay, so the third one that I would say, um, the third practice of simplicity for me has been um, focus. And this is one I feel like I don't really hear as much, and I don't know if that's unique to our story or what, but um, like I said, Jesus had this really unique focus. Um, and it's more than just like, I know what I'm here for, you know. It's more than that kind of destiny kind of question. But I think um, simplicity as focus, we, we allow ourselves to be everywhere in life and nowhere, right? Uh, one of my mentors in seminary um, used to, there are two lines that he said to me, probably 
every week that I saw him. Uh, and he said, the first one was, he said, if you're overextended, you're undercommitted. If you're overextended, you're undercommitted. I mean, if you think about it, how does our community define commitment? It's like, look, look what I'm, I go to Stand Up KC stuff. I'm a part of the Poor People's Campaign. I live at Cherith Brook. I went to this anti-racism training. That's commitment. And it is an expression of commitment to the cause for justice. That's true. But I think there's a sense in which um, how, how is that also expression of our life? Is there something in that that is our expression of a lack of commitment or a lack of focus or a lack of clarity about who we are or who you are at that moment? The second thing this person used to say was the choice of what to do in life is rarely between a good thing and a bad thing, right? The, the callings in our life aren't like, oh, well, this is obviously good, and so it's really an easy decision about how I focus my life and my energies and my faith and, and my spirituality uh, and my work. No, they're usually our choices are between two equally good things, right? So um, how do we open ourselves up to going back to that statement of uh, how do we open ourselves up to... Um, I mean, if the divine love of God and connecting with that is the focus, I think that helps us as a starting point. But I think that's a question that each person has to ask for themselves uh, in terms of calling. So I, I, I want to be very broad with that one. But I think, can you describe your focus as simple in some way, in some spiritual way? I wonder. Ask yourself. Um, I think I just want to chat briefly about some of the pitfalls. I think I've shared a little bit already, uh, but the pitfalls that I've experienced um, in uh, a spirituality of simplicity. Uh, the most obvious one, especially when we think about material simplicity, um, is we're very harsh on ourselves. Uh, for those of us who have a perfectionist strain uh, I'm a one on the Enneagram, and so I, I, uh, I like things perfectly done uh, in my head, you know. And it's never done in reality the way it's done in my head. Um, so there's, there, simplicity can drive people to kind of a harshness towards self and a lack of ability to love oneself. Um, because frankly, uh, for example, to unpack our, our connection to a con a a culture of consumption is just frankly impossible, right? And I don't mean that in a defeating way. I just mean that we all know how complicit we are. So if you had this thought that a life of simplicity would somehow, um, you know, extract you from this culture, um, then, then I think you're, you're going to tend to be really harsh on yourself. And that doesn't match with even the language of divine love, as we're going to see in First John at the end here. Another pitfall that that ones really fall into is judgment of others. I mean, and we say, I say this sometimes to my community members or past community members have heard me say this a lot, and that is, um, trust me, as much as I'm judging you, I'm judging myself twice as much. So, I mean, that's part of it. But the reality is, is that, um, well, Dorothy Day, who's the founder of The Catholic Worker, has beautiful journals. If you want to walk through somebody else's spiritual journey and really watch the ups and downs and the authenticity of a challenge of spirituality, read her journals. Um, 
And she talks about later in life being older and these young new activists move into the Catholic worker house, the mother house in New York, and how hurtful it is for Dorothy for these people to come up to her and say, like, I thought you guys were living a radical lifestyle. Like, look at all these clothes you have. You know, I, I, I thought you, you know, you're dressing all nice and you live, you live in this nice building and you have these nice clothes. And, and it really hurt Dorothy because it was like, I don't think that this person understands. I think partly because it felt like judgment, right? Um, we had uh, one of the first years that, we, that Cherithbrook was open, we had a young lady come. And she wasn't actually intending to be judgmental, but she was like, you know, I've been living without a bed for the last couple of years. This is a spiritual discipline. And she's like, and I just was surprised to come here and see that you all had beds, you know. So we all come to a, to a spiritual discipline with our own, in our own place, which I think is a good thing. Um, and I think as a community, we should support where people are at. Like, if this person wanted to live without a bed, I wanted her to know that that would be a, if that's a spiritual practice that helps her to move closer to the divine love, then I want her to do it. And I want to support her to do it. I don't want to make fun of her or tease her or, or be defensive about the fact that I do have a bed. You know, so learning that. But judgment is a pitfall. It's a challenge. We already talked a little about the, the uh, paradox of simplicity. And I think that's something that catches people off guard. If you commit to certain practice of simplicity, um, frankly, it takes more time to live simply. It takes... Um, it feels more complicated, at least initially, and maybe, maybe through the whole time. It can initially take more energy and more work. I mean, I think there's a sense in which if I live a life of simplicity, we're attracted to it because we're feeling overwhelmed. We're feeling consumed by our lives. We're feeling busy, and we're tired of all the work we have to do. Well, some, a practice of simplicity won't relieve all that for you. So you, you have to throw that expectation away. That's the paradox. The practice of simplicity will help you deepen why you do what you do or how to refocus doing what you do or ultimately how to bring you closer to the end of all of it in the love, somehow being more deeply connected to the loving in our community, the love we experience among each other. The last one which I really need community members to, I've really needed community members to teach me along the way is that um, the opposite of simplicity uh, or simplicity is not the opposite of celebration. It's not the opposite of joy, of extravagance, of abundance, of play, of beauty. Those are not opposites. In fact, you won't be able to really delve deeper into a, a spirituality of simplicity unless those things are, are somehow incorporated in your community life, in your personal life extravagance, beauty. Dorothy Day says the world will be saved by beauty. Um, maybe it's just where you find that beauty, where you, the, the, how much you depend on celebration, your willingness to be extravagant. Another great, probably um, apocryphal story of Dorothy Day, but possibly true, is that someone donated uh, someone came to Dorothy Day one day, a, a regular volunteer, and donated, gave her this diamond ring and said, please take it and sell it and you know, say, use the money to maybe put some people up in, in, uh, in an apartment for a couple of months. And she said, thank you very much. She put it in her apron. They were serving a meal. And then in walks in um, Sally. I don't know her name, but there, it was a regular guest of her Catholic worker house. 
who was obvious, uh, uh, often a very cantankerous, irritable person that nobody really appreciated being with. And Dorothy Day went over to her, took out the diamond ring, and gave it to her. And then walked back to the soup line. And the person was like, what? Why did you do this? And she said, what, only the rich get to enjoy beauty? Only the rich get to experience beauty in their life? So don't forget that. Those are some of the pitfalls, I think, of a call to simplicity. So hopefully we're back to where we started, which was at, at the end, right? <laughs> um, divine love. Thank you for listening today and for responding with your expressions and your, and your posture and your, um, yeah, your just awareness. Uh, it's a gift of love to me. And remember, divine love is not shallow. It's not basic. It's not simplistic. But I think it is the complete, clear, whole, pure, singular truth of our life. The, Bible's, the Bible is a mixed document, but if you haven't read 1 John four recently. Let me end with just a few beautiful lines from this letter that must have been, um, yeah, I imagine someone writing this letter to their community and, and what a gift it must have felt to hear this letter or to read this letter together as a community. So this person was writing to his community and some of the lines that come out of it are, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everybody who loves, everybody who loves has been born of God. Everybody who loves knows God. Here's another line. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God, God lives in us and God's love is made complete in us. Here's another line. God is love. Here's another line. The last. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Thanks.